Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Bilal Rahmani. He is an expert on Afghanistan. He has also spent time in China. He's a very interesting chap. He's also an author at Fair Observer. Welcome, Bilal. Thank you, Atul. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. So, Bilal, paint us a picture of Afghanistan today. Sure. I think Afghanistan in the modern day is definitely a place that's in a great amount of turmoil and transition. Uh, its people don't really know what form of government the current state is going to take. Uh, the Taliban also do not have a firm idea about what they want Afghanistan to actually be. Its neighbors are not entirely sure of how to approach relations with the Taliban, and militant groups are seizing power on the border areas. It's a place where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of instability right now. I so, sorry, um, please, when you were completing something. Yeah, I was just going to say that it doesn't seem that there's any stable ground in Afghanistan, so to speak. Uh, everyone is kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop and figure out what is actually going to become of the nation. Uh, well, you've called Afghanistan a nation, and we'll get to that mm -hmm. uh, later on. Uh, some people question that mm -hmm. definition. But before we crack on, I take the view that revolutions depend on the price of bread or of wheat. And we've had reports of hunger. India mm -hmm. sent 50,000 tons of wheat mm -hmm. to Afghanistan. I don't know if it reached everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, it may have just been distributed to areas mm -hmm. where the Taliban has support, largely Pashtun areas. We don't know what happened to that. Um, but my broader question is, how is the economy doing and can people feed themselves? I would say unless you have foreign backing right now, it is very difficult to feed yourself in Afghanistan. Uh, so, fire. so are people going hungry? I would say yes. In a lot of cases, people in villages in Afghanistan don't really have the supplies to feed themselves. You mentioned- Can't they, can they grow their own wheat? Well, it would depend on what the Taliban allows them to do. And if the Taliban seizes the land which they're growing wheat on, what we're seeing recently is through the Ministry of Justice, the Taliban is taking a lot of the land that was previously used for farming away from people and distributing it to Taliban warlords. Um, you mentioned uh, degrees of wheat being uh, sent from India to Afghanistan, but that also depends on whether or not Pakistan allows those wheat shipments to actually be transported into Afghanistan. So the 50,000 went, uh, I believe, earlier. Mm -hmm. They went, I think, last year. Mm -hmm. And Pakistan did allow that. They mm -hmm. went in trucks. They went mm -hmm. via land. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I don't know if India is persisting with uh, mm -hmm. giving wheat. Uh, my question was, the moment uh, that wheat uh, truck um, movement happened is that, OK, India is giving wheat now. What happens later? Mm -hmm. That's true. I think that those temporary sort of stopgap measures to allow Afghans to feed themselves, it's not sustainable. Um, one, because the Taliban doesn't maintain good foreign relations with its neighbors, so it can't rely on those shipments of food to continue. Uh, they also don't want to cooperate with the UN that provides a lot of the humanitarian aid to Afghanistan in the first place. Um, and like I said previously, 
they're seizing a lot of the arable land that was used previously for farming. And unfortunately, a lot of the opium production is still continuing in Afghanistan. So even the arable land that would have been used to grow food, a lot of times is going back into producing more opium. Um, and, and, and what's the economy like? So the agriculture mm. is in a mess. Yes. Um, people are hungry. Mm. What is the broader economy like? Are mm. Afghans producing goods and services now or are basically urban Afghans also on the mm. verge of starvation? Because now it is an increasingly urban country. It's true. Uh, and a lot of the Taliban have moved into these major cities, but it's also created quite a difficult situation where none of the businesses know what kind of ground they're operating on anymore. Taxation isn't really clear. It's not clear who the police is and how to actually get security for your businesses. Um, I would I would really hazard to say that everyone in an urban environment in Afghanistan is starving. I think a lot of people have deep cash reserves that they've managed to save up. And a lot of those cash reserves are being used now to buy food that's mostly being imported. Um, and that must be coming from Pakistan, from over the land border, because people uh, forget that Afghanistan is really a landlocked country. Exactly. And a lot of food shipments are coming from Pakistan as well. But that also depends on the Pakistani government's willingness to trade with Afghanistan, which we've seen that trade intermittently be shut off when border relations are bad. And, you know, there are really huge amount of complaints that at the Torkham border crossing, for example, trucks are lined up for days, sometimes weeks allowing food just to rot on the trucks and not entering Afghanistan. It's the same thing with goods entering the country and leaving the country. The export situation a lot of times just depends on the foreign relations and how the Taliban is able to maintain those relations with Pakistan or Iran, which they haven't been doing a great job of. With and, Iran, uh, mm -hmm. there is uh, even talk of war, especially over water. Yes, uh, we've even seen IRGC clash with Taliban forces on the borders. Just Iran. tell our uh, audience what uh, who the IRGC are. <laughs> of course, uh, <laughs> the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, a lot of their border police and border guards have been clashing with Taliban fighters. Um, we've seen expulsion of Iranian diplomatic envoys replaced with charge of the affairs. Um, and even that isn't a stable position. Uh, also, I'd like to note there that a lot of the times the people who are at the very top of the Taliban leadership do want trade to continue. They do want business to continue. They do want all of these things that, you know, create a stable and sustainable economy to happen. But it's whether or not the people on the ground actually allow it to continue. Because their forces are far too ideological than the leaders themselves. Yes, exactly. And I think this comes back to my point about a large amount of unpredictability and instability in Afghanistan, where even the political class of the Taliban don't agree with the actual fighting forces of the Taliban. So we see a large disconnect from what the foreign relations are trying to maintain and what is actually happening on the ground. So Dr. Frankenstein has created many monsters. Yes, that's a great <laughs> way of putting it. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, now um, talk about women in Afghanistan. Mm. Now, We've had uh, conversations right. on that topic. Uh, you probably saw our YouTube video mm -hmm. and uh, our authors have been threatened. Our authors mm -hmm. have been persecuted. Um, their parents have been threatened with death. So it's a grim situation. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm told uh, women are facing the grimmest of all situations. 
So yes. what are the women experiencing right now? I would say wide-scale oppression, silencing on a level that has not been seen since the Taliban ruled Kabul um, prior to 2001. Uh, you know, so they can't go to school anymore. Not really. No, uh, they can't work anymore. Even if they are able to work or go to school, they're quickly intimidated and stopped from that activity. Um, mm. You know, I think we saw the poisoning just previously. Uh, we had one poisoning in Sarapul province of 80 Hazara girls in two different incidents. Um, that was a clear intimidation to make women stop going to school at the elementary level. But before that, even in 2022, um, we had the poisoning of uh, women protesting at Kabul University, which the Taliban blamed on the cafeteria having bad supplies of food. But in actuality, the men, the male students had no issue. Uh, so it was very clear that there was a targeted attack there. So even in situations when women are being allowed to participate in society, we very quickly see that uh, elements of the Taliban intimidate them and force them to, to leave those sectors. Um, and the Taliban, they talk a lot of game that they're interested in uh, allowing women to participate in the economy, but it's just to appease uh, people like the UN, um, international organizations that are contributing to to Afghanistan that they can't really break all of their relations with at this time. Um, but in actuality, that that progress doesn't exist. They don't have that intention. And their revocation of allowing women to work in humanitarian situations in Afghanistan is a clear example of that. They want the pie, but they don't really want to pay the baker for it. Okay, so women are in a sorry state. Mm -hmm. um, what about the minorities, the Shia Hazaras, mm. the Persian-speaking Tajiks, the Uzbeks, the Turkmen, and others? Afghanistan is a highly multi-ethnic society. In mm. fact, uh, it, it is a bit of a cobbled-up state. It was a buffer state between the expanding Russian Empire and the expanding British Empire. And even before that, the Persians and the Mughals fought over Afghanistan repeatedly. Uh, they had three major battles uh, over Kandahar. Mm -hmm. So um, in this multi-ethnic society, what is going on? That's an extremely good question. And it's very difficult to say, again, because of this oppression that we see happening in Afghanistan. Oh, well, we do know about Shia Hazaras. Lots Absolutely. of uh, Hazaras have reached out to us. And in fact, uh, we published a letter by authors from Afghanistan uh, protesting the persecution of Shia Hazaras. And I'd definitely like to thank the Fair Observer for all the voice they've given to the Afghan community over the years. Um, I, actually, there was an incident this week uh, in Samangan province where the Taliban governor uh, dug up the roads leading to a Shia Hazara village um, and essentially told the people that they had to leave the village. Uh, they were requesting the Taliban pay for the land that they were claiming that and the Taliban uh, essentially blockaded the village and is not allowing people to leave right now. I think it's indicative of the larger situation that, that minorities are facing. Displacement, it's, it's a very clear game plan. It's something that's existed since the Afghan-Soviet war. Um, you know, when the, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, they went to these farmlands and handed edicts to the farmers that gave them the rights to the land. And uh, the you know majority stakeholders would go to those lands and reclaim them with religion. The Taliban is using that same tactic to take a lot of the ethnic lands away from ethnic peoples. They'll go to these places and tell them, if you don't give us your land, then you're going to go to hell. And these are the clerics who are telling you that that's going to happen. 
And the land that we see the Ministry of Justice taking the most of is land in Panjshir. Ah, so, so, but, uh, mm. so my question to you, Panjshir mm. Valley, which is where the Tajiks fought, mm-hmm. which is where the line of Panjshir, Ahmad Shah Masood, commanded his troops and inflicted maximum damage on Soviet troops. Yes. People forget it wasn't the Pashtuns, it was the Tajiks mm-hmm. who fought the best fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the Tajiks may be Persian speaking, but they are Sunni. Yes. They're Hazaras, you can damn them as Shia, and in any case, their loyalty may be suspect. They may be um, holding allegiance to Iran, and Iran has uh, projected mm. itself as a Shia leader. But mm. with the Tajiks, how does religion come into play? I would say religion has less of an important role than it does in Pashtun society. I see the Taliban movement as very Deobandi, very... Yeah, Deoband, for those of our... Listeners who don't know is a town to the northeast, if I remember correctly, That's of correct. uh, Delhi. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, a school that began in the aftermath of the collapse of the Mughal Empire, 1858. Within a decade, there was this school that believed that, um, that believed the collapse had occurred because uh, the Mughals had become decadent, immoral, and debauched. Yes. And uh, Muslims in the subcontinent had, got, had to go back to the purity of the Quran mm-hmm. and, and follow the Sharia devoutly. And again, a Muslim empire would arise in the Indian subcontinent. So the, the history of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, and even Bangladesh are all intertwined. Yes, it's very true. And I think the Taliban have really taken that Deobandi ideology and ran with it. This idea that, uh, you know, society needs to be an extremely fundamental place um, that obeys, you know, the very letter of the Quran. And in that way, they can kind of be blessed uh, and successful as a nation. However, I think the, and the Tajiks are more secular. The Tajiks mm-hmm. have always been Persian speaking and the Tajiks are not exactly as devout and observant as uh, many of the Pashtuns and the Taliban? I wouldn't say not as devout, but I would say that they have a different understanding of Islamic jurisprudence. So they are more Sufi? Yes, I would say so. Yeah. I I think that a lot of the Tajik people have this understanding that Islam is a religion of interpretation and jurisprudence depends on the current context that the society that we live in, very sort of Hanafi way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas a lot of the Pashtuns, a lot of the Talibs, have a more fundamentalist way of thinking. So they are more Salafi. Mm. Yes, exactly. So they've been influenced by mm. Saudi money as well. Yes, yeah, exactly. Osama bin Laden, thank mm. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate all your hard work. <laughs> uh, so, uh, all right, so Tajiks, in, especially in Panjshir mm. Valley, and of course the other valleys as well are mm-hmm. suffering. What about the Uzbeks, the Turkmen and others? I would say that in the north of Afghanistan, we've seen that a lot of the sort of proto-states that have tried to pop up in the past have been quashed very quickly. I don't see as wide of a scale of oppression of Uzbeks and Turkmen as you do of Hazaras and Tajiks, Mm. because I believe that in the Pashtun sort of mindset about Afghanistan's history, they've always viewed Tajiks and Hazaras as sort of two of their what would you say? Rival centers of power. Exactly. The Tajiks have also always held positions of power in Kabul's government. 
And mm-hmm. well, you, you're Persian speaking, so the bureaucracy yes. quite mm-hmm. often is Tajik dominated. Exactly. And it's only recently changed back to Pashto. And this was a very big sticking point for the Taliban in the past that they had this society that was written in Persian, but spoken in Pashto. And it, it was something that did not really sit well with them. Now we see that, you know, even the newscasts today aren't being recorded in Persian. They're being recorded in Pashto. Official documents are only being written in Pashto. The language is somewhat being erased. Um, and in Hazaras, they've always viewed them as a different religious uh, source of power, the Shia minority kind of oppressing the Sunni, uh, the Sunni majority, pushing back on their beliefs. And, you know, I think this goes back into a lot of the Salafi uh, ideas that you mentioned previously. It, it doesn't it go back even to the 19th century, Abdurrahman also persecuting the Hazaras, of course. Yes. Thomas yeah. Barfield pointed yes. out that Abdurrahman mm. uh, was persecuting anyone who, yes. who was opposing his power. But I think he wasn't as ideological as the Taliban. Mm. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% right. And Barfield definitely points out a really good point of Abdurrahman Khan using religion as a unifying force, but using force to be able to actually push that religion onto people. And removing the Shia minority from that equation was a really essential part of maintaining that legitimacy. So now that you've talked about uh, the predominance of Pashto today mm-hmm. um, and uh, ethnic nationalism defining the Taliban. I want to move us uh, very swiftly on mm-hmm. to the new relationship of a Taliban-led Afghanistan mm-hmm. with Pakistan, because mm-hmm. that is now a can of worms, isn't it? Very, <laughs> very much so. I think Afghanistan's current biggest issue is Pakistan and their relations with Pakistan mainly because, well, Pakistan supported the Taliban. They abandoned uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar um, and they switched their support for the Taliban. So so tell our listeners about the great Hekmatyar, because remember, most people are not Afghanistan experts. (laughs) (laughs) You'll have to forgive me for that. Um, Yes, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar was um, a Mujahideen commander that fought during the Afghan-Soviet war. Just like Emir Shah Massoud? Yes. He was not as good as Ahmad Shah Massoud, but he still fought the good fight. (laughs) He he did indeed. Um, However, when the Afghan-Soviet war ended, uh, Pakistan's Inter Service Intelligence Agency. ISI, the Inter Services Intelligence, which India dreads, and and so do the Tajiks. (laughs) (laughs) This is is extremely true. Uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar was um, their person on the ground. Uh, His... uh, his organization, um, they were the ones who were supposed to take Kabul for Pakistan, for the ISI, and they were the ones who were supposed to win the battles. However, Hekmatyar, after failing to take Kabul and shelling the entire neighborhood, all of the residential neighborhoods in Kabul, earning him the nickname Rakatyar, uh, locally, by the way. Um, what, a, what a great nickname to have. Uh, sounds like a <laughs> Bollywood, if not Hollywood villain. <laughs> But he he lost the ISI support. It shifted to too many rockets. Too many rockets for the ISI's favorite. Yeah, they they liked AK forty sevens. It seems so. (laughs) So he flattened Kabul, and that flattening of Kabul Mm -hmm. um, basically um, made him lose a lot of popular support there, I suppose. Exactly. I think his domestic legitimacy was shot after he failed to win Kabul and also led this very brutal shelling campaign in Kabul as well. 
Um, but the Taliban post results. They stormed through the countryside, you know, led by Mullah Omar. They managed to take a lot of places and hold them with a very good formula. Um, you know, recruit local people from madrasas, have this very resilient um, pipeline. Of madrasas water. are religious schools for those of mm -hmm. our listeners who are in the West and don't know. They tend to be fanatical. They mm -hmm. tend to have a very hardline, mm -hmm. literalist teaching of the Quran. Uh, they do not come from the Hanafi Sufi tradition of the Tajiks. They do not believe in interpretation per se. They believe in their interpretation. They believe in truth with a capital T. Ipso facto, the students who come out of the madrasas or madrasas tend to be ideological and, um, and young and quite bloodthirsty. That's very true. And I think the Taliban really had this winning formula of managed to capitalize on all of these children of lost wars uh, mm. inside of these madrasas and create this really resilient pipeline of fighters mm. and managed to create a lot of legitimacy by attaching themselves to the Deobandi tradition. Mm. Pakistan thought they were a winning strategy because they believed that they had the same ideas that the Mujahideen had. However, what we're seeing now is the Taliban have taken over Afghanistan and they've lost that sort of client relationship with Pakistan. Um, they've abandoned Pakistan and instead they're allowing the Tariqa Taliban, Pakistan, the sort of offshoot branch of the Taliban. The TTP, the yes, Tariqa exactly. uh, Taliban of Pakistan. Mm. They're, they're allowing them to work within Afghanistan and attack in Pakistan, so much so that we even see Pakistani drone strikes attacking TTP leaders inside of Afghanistan. Um, and we even see new offshoot groups like the TJP, the Tariqa Jihad Pakistan, showing up. Um, and it's very clear that the Taliban and Pakistan have a strange relationship now where Pakistan has expected the Taliban to be grateful and work for them, where the Taliban has turned around and said, you are also our oppressors. You have Pashtunistan. We want to fight back against that. And although the political class of, the, of Afghanistan, the Taliban leadership, sort of has a maintain the status quo relationship with Pakistan, the fighters on the ground have a completely opposite relationship. We even saw daylight clashes at Torkham border crossing, not in February of this year. Uh, broad daylight, Pakistani and uh, Pakistani troops and Taliban fighters shooting AK-47s at each other, you know, in broad daylight. Um, and these clashes have continued in the hinterlands and KPK, Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa in Pakistan, has become one of the most dangerous places on the earth at this point. You know, the TTP has continued to have bombings almost every single day in Tank. Um, there are several areas where clashes are extremely regular uh, with police officers, with uh, Frontier Corps, and with mainline Pakistani military. So, so what you're saying is mm -hmm. that an, a wave of ethnic nationalism and triumphalism mm -hmm. has swept through the Pashtun fighters, if not the Pashtun leaders. And the idea of Pashtunistan or Pakhtunistan, the greater Yes. Um, yeah. Afghanistan really has come alive again. Now, our listeners uh, should note that no government in Kabul ever accepted the Durand line. The border between Pakistan and Afghanistan still mm -hmm. remains undefined. A number of Pashtuns ended up in Pakistan and uh, there were people like Frontier Gandhi Khan, Abdul Ghaffar Khan, who never quite accepted the idea of Pakistan. 
And so amongst the Pashtuns in uh, uh, Pakistan, some have had separatist ideas. And amongst the Pashtuns in Afghanistan, there has been the sentimental and emotional pull of uniting all the Pashtuns under one flag, mm. one banner, one state. And it should be mentioned that if the Taliban were to actually manage to restore Pashtunistan to erase the Durand line and restore the lands which they see as rightfully theirs, they would gain a level of domestic legitimacy that would be unseen in Afghan history. They would be able to rally their troops inside of Afghanistan and maintain the state that they've currently you know, kind of stumbled into, I would say. Yeah. So Ahmad Shah Durrani's uh, host would come alive. Yes, in a way. <laughs> I, I think that they, they see themselves sort of in his image um, as great reuniters of Afghanistan. And, you know, the, the way that TTP... Oh, the great be, uniters of, of uh, Pashtuns. Yes. Hmm. Well, I think they would argue that Pashtunistan it's, is Afghanistan, that it's, it is, you know, it was a, the Durand line is a scar of the Anglo-Afghan wars. Hmm. It's something that was taken away from Afghanistan. I mean, we even see in the globe that they placed in the center of Kabul, the, the picture of Afghanistan they draw is with Pashtunistan included. They, they don't recognize the current border. Well, that may be so, but uh, the regime is not being able to feed its people. It's mm -hmm. destroyed the economy. It's mm -hmm. persecuting minorities and women mm -hmm. are in a dire state. So my question to you is a very simple one. Is the regime strongly entrenched or like many earlier regimes in Kabul, it seems strong, but when push comes to shove, things fall apart. The center cannot hold. I would say it doesn't even seem strong to me right now. I mean, we have three people at the center of Afghanistan uh, claiming to rule the country. We have Abdul Ghani Baradar. Uh, he's the minister of economy. He's claiming to be an emir. Um, we have Sirajuddin Haqqani. Uh, he's the minister of interior. He's claiming to be the emir. Um, and then we have Haibutullah Akhundada, uh, who's claiming to be the supreme leader of Afghanistan. Not the emir. Not the Emir. He's complaining to be the supreme leader. It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> They've all picked oh, different titles for What is other. the difference between these different titles? I get it. Two people are claiming the same title. They're Emir, they're the ruler. I get it. Uh, you know, good throwback to uh, medieval Muslim history. But what is the supreme leader? Well, I, I think that that's actually a really excellent question because the fact that he calls himself the supreme leader, and by the way, we have never seen this man on camera before. We we don't even know where he is. He, he doesn't call him supreme, himself supremo by any chance. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a really amusing title. I would, I would love to see that Twitter post. And, yeah. and the Taliban do love Twitter. That's one thing. Are they um, good at it? Well, X now, apologies. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there, there's these three different power centers in Afghan politics right now. And it's really unclear who's actually in charge. Sometimes we have edicts come down from Haibutullah Akhwanzada, and they're executed very quickly, but also just as well when Sirajin Haqqani speaks or when we have Abdul Ghani Baradar speak and they institute policies, those policies are instituted very quickly as well. So it's unsure as to who is actually running this regime right now. And they could have three heads. In Indian mythology, Ravan had 10 heads. <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny, it's funny that you say that because when uh, Afghanistan actually was taken over by the Taliban, what we did notice is that almost every Taliban leader had declared themselves prime minister of something. And there was a part where, you know, I, I was covering this and 
it, it was like you would throw a rock and run into a prime minister. Um, they all gave themselves prime minister titles and they all became leaders in their own right. And eventually they managed to kind of stabilize into this current situation where either you're in the Haqqani camp, you're in the Baradar camp, or you're in this Akhundzada camp. But it's still not even sure where this power base is. So is the regime going to maintain itself? I would say probably not in the current state that we see it right now. I'd be very doubtful if they manage to maintain this current status quo. I think eventually one of these three men will uh, try to seize power. Kill the other two? Yes, exactly. Uh, (laughs) I think that that's probably the most likely scenario. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that if that were to happen, that would be the sort of disillusionment of the state itself. Because it's disillusionment. Uh, disillusionment with the state of the people or do you yes. want to disillusion are you to, oh, talking about a dissolution of the state itself the a dissolution of the state itself i think that uh-huh. these three people have managed to get a winning formula but they themselves cannot agree about who's actually in charge of the winning formula right now they're in a stable state of kind of stasis right mm-hmm. um if one of them goes away uh the huge power base that they control will likely weaponize against the other power bases Um, So it's likely to see that the Taliban fragmentation that we've been witnessing is going to become a reality once a move is made. And I think we're waiting for to see what that actual move is, you know. So the greatest threat to the regime really Mm. is civil war, the Taliban disintegrating. Is that what you're saying? I think it's, it's possible that it becomes a civil war. I think it's possible that it takes the form of a coup. Um, that doesn't so one person kills the other two and becomes the supreme leader. Exactly. and Or Amir or whatever he decides to call himself. Yes. And, and then it could turn into a balkanization. You know, we could see different ethnic states starting to form. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. I, I asked um, Thomas Barfield mm. this question, will Afghanistan hold? And he said, well, if Afghanistan had to disintegrate, it would have disintegrated already because mm. the Tajiks in Afghanistan don't really want to be a part of Tajikistan. Mm. The... The, the Uzbeks don't really want to be a part of Uzbekistan. They have very little in common culturally because these are former Soviet territories. Mm-hmm. And even perhaps the Hazar Shias might not want to be a part of Iran. So what you are saying is that balkanization is a possibility. That's very different to what Thomas said. I think so. I, I think it is a possibility. I think that If you look at the Afghan civil war, balkanization had started at that time. It was not successful because the Taliban were able to rise up and manage to capture the majority of Afghan, like popular opinion, and manage to... They never conquered Panjshir. In fact, uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud put up a jolly good fight and the Taliban killed him only two days before 9-11, basically in 2001. So... They never quite had control over Panjshir as they have today. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, even a lot of people argued that in the north of Afghanistan, in Kunduz, there was also a proto-state that held on for quite a long time. Um, You know, it's it's Dost Muhammad, uh, he managed to actually create that proto-state and he managed to maintain it for quite a long time. And it was only because... Just tell our listeners... Who is Dost Muhammad? Because ah. not everyone has read Thomas Barfield's <laughs> history of Afghanistan. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, he's a, a very highly eccentric Uzbek warlord who now lives in Turkey, and uh, he has claimed that the Taliban has sent people to try to assassinate him last year, and that Turkish intelligence intercepted that assassination attempt. 
Um, he's currently supporting the National Resistance Front in Afghanistan. Um, but you are right that Panjshir was always a bastion. Um, and one could argue that it was sort of a proto-state that the U.S. It empowered during their invasion of Afghanistan, which allowed them to actually build that foothold um, and then go and take the entire nation back from the Taliban. Um, but I, I think that if I were to say, you know, balkanization, I wouldn't say that it's impossible. Um, you know, we've seen that the borders of Afghanistan have always been in flux. The borders of Afghanistan were redrawn, you know, not 200 years ago. Uh, and the current borders of Afghanistan are not being recognized. Whether or not, uh, you know, there's a sort of slicing of piecemeal strategy like we see, you know, in India and, and China with their border, or if it's something that's a complete separation, like uh, Mawlawi Mahdi, the Taliban warlord who separated from the Taliban and tried to create a proto-state in Balkhabria last year, if we see something like that. And I, that was a Hazara Shia state. Yes, that's correct. Um, and he took the Taliban fighters that were under his control and tried to create his own sort of uh, proto-state. And paid with his life. Yes, he did. Yeah. Um, and it, it's an interesting story as well, um, because he, he took a lot of the Taliban forces and kind of used that to create the proto-state. And it, if the Taliban uh, had been engaged, let's say, you know, this was one rebellion, if there was four or five different rebellions, I really doubt that the Taliban would be able to muster enough power to quash all of them at the same time and stop this sort of balkanization. So what we see is indicators of it. So paint us a picture. If mm. there is rebellion mm. and there are four or five at the same time mm. and the Shia Hazaras say, well, to hell with it, mm. we'll go for it because mm. we are in any case living in, in the fear of our lives. And if the Tajiks rise at the same time and the Uzbeks rise at the same time, and let's say thousands of women come out on the streets because there aren't that many Taliban fighters, mm -hmm. then you believe that Afghanistan could dissolve like Yugoslavia. I, I think so. I, I think it's, it's very possible that something like that happens. Because what we see is when rebellions uh, pop up in Afghanistan, and you know, I point to the National Resistance Front as well in the previous year, the Taliban react very, very firmly, very strong, very fast, but then they withdraw all their forces about a month later. So what we can kind of assume is that the Taliban doesn't really have the fighting force to maintain inside of these places. And, you know, like, like your video series with Barfield noted, uh, in times where the Taliban is not engaged in an active conflict, maintaining a standing army is quite difficult for them. And so, so that brings me to the question um, that is... Uh, on everyone's lips, or I should rephrase that by saying every informed mm. uh, observer's lips. If the economy is down in the dumps, if people are hungry, where will the Taliban find the money, mm. find the resources to maintain a standing army and to fight the numerous uh, insurgencies, potential insurgencies bubbling away. V.S. Naipaul once mm. called India a million mutinies now. Mm. And it seems that uh, that phrase applies to Afghanistan more than India. There seem to be a million mutinies bubbling away. Mm. And it's a pressure cooker. Yeah, this is very true. And I think the Taliban is now sort of trying to figure out their financial situation. They've tried to maintain a lot of the strategies that they had during the U.S.-Afghan war, you know, maintaining a lot of their drug trade, uh, maintaining a lot of opium production. And um, where does it go? Uh, 
goes to Central Asia. Uh, you know, it's exported into Pakistan uh, and Iran as well. Iran as well. Um, but I would also mention that the Taliban usually isn't the one who's in control of the opium production or the processing into heroin. They're usually the ones who are just transporting it and being the bodyguards for these operations and kind of facilitating this. Um, do they collect informal taxes on that trade? They do indeed. Um, and production of heroin. Yes. And a lot of times they'll they'll have pickup and delivery services for a lot of the farmers in Afghanistan. So if you farm opium, uh, the Taliban will come and pick it up for you uh, and they'll they'll charge a fee uh, and they'll sell it to the markets for you. Um, but if you if you, for example, grow carrots, they're not going to do that. Um, but they're or also, even saffron. Yeah, yeah. Or even pistachio. To great. They're, they're not going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> the great export products of Afghanistan, yeah, historically. Unfortunately, yeah. they're not. Along, along with raisins. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's difficult because it does it just doesn't turn as much of a profit um, yeah. for them. It's the same problem exists in South America, as we know. Exactly. But, but, but here's a question. Can this ragtag mm. um, army funded mm. by the opium trade mm. uh, fight, say, the Pakistani regular army or the IRGC, the mm. Iranian um, Revolutionary Guard Corps, and maintain the state? I think the Taliban have never been interested in fighting conventional wars. They've only been interested in fighting guerrilla wars. So, but now they are no longer a guerrilla force. Now they are a mm. government, and now this is true. they have to make the transition mm. from being guerrillas, mm. living off the land, mm. to a governing force. Mm. And there might be other guerrillas living off the land and taking a snipe at them. It's true, but I would say that you know, given the example that there's a conflict between Iran and Afghanistan, I would imagine that the battlefield it would look very heavily in the favor of Iran. You know, they have the equipment, they have the training, they have the military structure. They have the drones. Able, they have the drones. They, they'll, they'll be able to sweep the Taliban like the Taliban have never seen before. But and could they liberate the Shia Hazara areas? But that's where it becomes complicated. It's, it's always managing to defeat the Taliban in a one-on-one -on -one conflict has never been the issue. That's, that's very easy to do. Maintaining power over areas that the Taliban have exercised power over for an extremely long time, that's the difficult part. So but we are living in an era where mm -hmm. borders are no longer sacrosanct. Yeah. The history of the world, by the way, is a history of changing borders. Mm -hmm. And the Russia-Ukraine war has demonstrated that mm -hmm. borders, even in Europe, are not sacrosanct. Very true. So what's stopping Iran from creating a client Shia state mm -hmm. in Afghanistan? It'll be a lot safer for them and it'll be a lot better mm -hmm. for their water rights. Mm -hmm. This is very true. I think that they risk a lot of terrorist incidents incurring inside of Iran. Uh, as a result of that, I think when you look at what's happening mm -hmm. in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, because they Pakistan, also Iran also has a Sunni minority which they oppress in turn. Exactly, and there are also domestic insurgencies in Iran mm -hmm. that could be further strengthened, like Baluch ultranationalism could become a very very threatening movement if the Taliban were to put their weight behind it. Mm. Um, and also, the Taliban have shown that they can attack within Iran. They've they've seized assets that were left uh, in Iran uh, that were owned by the Taliban before. Um, they've shown that they can attack inside of there, and they've shown that they can at least hold their own on basic firefights with the IRGC, enough so that if the IRGC were to actually hold, say, Herat, 
for a significant amount of time, we can expect a lot of guerrilla fighting to occur, so much so that it might not be in Iran's best interest to expose themselves to that degree. Um, it would be a very complicated situation for them. So taking the land is always easy. Holding the land is it's what's difficult. Um, but so, again, I think so that argument applies to the Taliban as well, because they are holding Shia Hazara territory. Yeah. So what's stopping the Shia Hazaras from mm-hmm. mounting a guerrilla war against the Taliban? Again, it's it's when the hammer comes down. Um, I think that's what most of these rebellions fear in Afghanistan. It they managed to sustain to a point where the Taliban noticed them and cracked down very quickly, deploying special operations forces. You know, they're, they're the red. red Exactly, their red units mm-hmm. um, deploying lots of hardware very quickly. Uh, you know, there was some really disturbing footage coming out of um, the Panjshir rebellion from last year, where Taliban forces uh, deployed, you know, thousands of troops in the matter of days. Um, even had their minister of defense, uh, Qadi Fashuddin, uh, on the ground fighting as well. Um, and we saw really terrible human rights abuses of, you know, prisoners of war being executed in the mountains and. Footage of that being circulated. Shot in the back of shot. the head or yes. executed by a knife or a sword uh, or an shot axe? Shot in the back of the head um, and then being tumbled down mountains I in see. the valley. Um, That's not as bad as the Crusades, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Huge improvement. But, you know, a, a lot of these resistance groups kind of fear that hammer coming down. I think the trouble is that if they were to maintain uh, and past that point of the hammer coming down, they would realize that a lot of the, ta- the Taliban's forces are kind of a paper tiger. They can't maintain that level of military engagement for that long of a period of time. Um, so they very quickly enter, they bring down the hammer, and then they exit in mass. And that's what's happened in Panjshir now. Um, and we see sort of bubbling up of national resistance activity there. But So let's say the... Units have now left Panjshir Valley. Mm. So, what's stopping the Tajiks from running their own show now? You know, when the cat is away, the mice play. And and I'm sure that in some situations that does happen. However, that's when a lot of the land seizures come in. So, a lot of times, these Ministry of Justice officials will go to Panjshir, seize large swaths of land, hand it over to Taliban warlords, who will then kind of police that land by themselves. And the Taliban believes that, you know, through this piecemeal strategy of having these small pockets of power run by their, you know, their warlords, the people who were their generals um, with their own private security, they can maintain the status quo. And when they don't, uh, they try to resort to really drastic measures like what we saw in Samangan with digging up the roads to blockade the villages. They don't have the military forces to be able to enter that village right now. They might have it in two weeks. But at the moment, what they can do is dig up trenches and starve people. So it's they're still the the main stakeholders in the region. They're still the ones who make the rules. Um, so they are in power. They have three people all mm-hmm. simultaneously claiming to be rulers. Mm-hmm. They are using the hammer quite effectively. Yes. Uh, but mm-hmm. you foresee that when many rebellions break out at the same time, mm-hmm. and if there is internal unrest in the cities, then this regime could quite easily fall as many previous regimes. I think it's possible. And I think it's really salient when the Taliban had the Loya Jirga the previous year. to try Explain to to, uh, our listeners what a Loya Jirga is. Uh, A Loya Jirga is a meeting of the sort of, it's a Pashtun uh, negotiative process. 
It's often to determine sort of a constitutional framework for a nation um, or really, really massive decisions on a national scale. It includes stakeholders from across the country. Um, it's very tribal. Uh, the Taliban held one the previous year. Uh, I think it was about 3,000 attendees in total. And Largely elders, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Um, religious elders, tribal elders, um, you know, uh, military rulers in the region. Uh, they had all gathered together to try to decide the fate of Afghanistan. And it was attacked by ISIS-K uh, very effectively uh, as well. Um, it was attacked by the National Liberation Front, the National Resistance Front. Um, and they kind of had to disperse and cancel the meeting. There was no real resolution that came out of what's going to happen next. It kind of shows that they're not even able to maintain what Afghanistan is going to be in the current state. Um, so I don't think that there's there they have any cohesive answer for what Afghanistan should be. And this kind of confusion between these three leaders is what's causing a lot of this sort of, you know, ambivalence about what to do next. So I think, yeah, it's very it's very possible that Afghanistan balkanizes, falls apart. Um, the current government isn't ma- able to maintain the status quo because, like I said, they're in this state of flux right now. It's they they don't have any stable plan forward, um, and it's kind of showing, you know, with the economic situation the way it is. Excellent. So we've talked um, in the past about the world being volatile, uncertain, complex, and mm-hmm. ambiguous place. Now, a lot of people use VUCA as jargon, but in the case of Afghanistan, that bit of jargon seems to apply quite well. Uh, Bilal, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Look forward to having you again. Uh, perhaps next time we'll talk about China. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to. Thank you so much for having me, Atul. Thank you. It was a you. pleasure. Thank you.